Hey all, Isaac here. We've got a little something extra for you this week on the Artsy Podcast. Our executive editor, Alex Forbes, moderated a panel for new collectors last week at Noya House, Madison Square. He was joined by three art world experts, and together they broke down the mysteries of art pricing, how to develop relationships with artists, and the proper etiquette for selling a work of art. We're rebroadcasting it here for any budding collectors out there. And we'll be back Thursday with a regular podcast. Until then, enjoy this extra. Before we get started, and I think just rather than reading out all of your bios uh, word for word, I thought I'd let each of you um, just introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about what your involvement is in the arts, maybe if you do collect, how you started collecting. Sure. Um, So I'm Victoria Rogers, and I'm the director of arts at Kickstarter. Um, I also serve on the boards of the Brooklyn Museum and Creative Time. And I guess I started collecting... When I was pretty young, I, I went to an auction with my dad at Sotheby's. I think I wrote a research paper in sixth grade about Sotheby's. And so he thought it would be fun to take me um, to an auction. And we actually got something, which was like very unnerving for both of us. <laughs> we were like, how does this work? What do we do? What was the um, piece? It's a piece by Emile Bonnard. Um, so it's an impressionist or post-impressionist work, which is sort of the only work in that vein in my collection. So I know when people come to my house, they're always like, tell me about that. And I was like, yeah, but I picked it when I was maybe 12, but it holds a special place in my, in my collection, I guess. My name is Jasmine. I went to school at NYU here. Um, and then I, right after I graduated, I started working for a gallery called Macaro in the West Village. I worked there for two years, and then I moved on to a gallery called Kimrich, where I was a director for two years. Um, And then I started my own gallery in 2012. Um, Hi, guys. My name is Helen. I am the director of uh, Pulse Miami Beach, which is a contemporary art fair. And before that, I had a little gallery for 2.5 seconds. Um, And I've collected art for a long time. I was an art student. I was terrible, um, and I just love being around art cheesy as that sounds. Great. I guess just to start out, I'd love to get from each of you what the biggest piece of advice that you think new collectors should do. And then also maybe if there's anything you think like is a major faux pas that that might get you kicked out of the art world. (laughs) I don't think there's any faux pas. Um, Oh, okay. There are faux pas. Um, (laughs) Now I've got to think about that. Uh, I mean, I basically always default to you, you should buy what you love and I think there's so many different levels in collecting art so it's like whether you're going to buy for investment is a whole nother kettle of fish um but you know for me I buy what I love because I want to live with it just to respond to the last thing you said kicked out of the art world I think there's a bit of a myth that there's one art world and I've started to use the word community because I find it to be more specific I don't I don't really say my art community I say art community but really it is true that I have an art community within a larger organism that is a larger art universe. And I think that maybe finding your own community within this larger sort of daunting universe is probably the first step. And depending on where you are and how you became interested in art is usually like the first step. If if you're already here, then there's already somebody that you know that either collects or sells or makes art. So that's kind of like the beginning of your community and just starting there. 
Yeah, and I would sort of adding to that, I think communities can also be local. I think, and we have the benefit of being here in New York where there's so many um, institutions and organizations to get involved with. Like there's a whole ecosystem and a lot of entry points, whether it's, you know, being focused on the Chelsea galleries or um, spending time in Brooklyn or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I think being a New Yorker, you have this opportunity to take advantage of getting to know artists actually from an institutional perspective um, and seeing them at smaller nonprofits and supporting them there, showing up at openings, I think has been really important to me as much as being a part of the gallery world has. Um, and in terms of faux pas, I guess I would just say chasing the market feels like something that is really hard to do, but also can sort of tend to bring you away from what you really love. Um, and I think sort of using that as your North Star and collecting is probably the most valuable advice that I could give. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would, a lot of young collectors I've spoken to over the years have said, you know, they start out trying to kind of be the smartest person in the room and find the, the next big win, next big emerging art star. And uh, they end up buying a bunch of stuff that they don't like, selling it, which then makes them a flipper, which is not good either. Um, but then buying things that they're really passionate about um, and that they want to live with for a really long time. And that ends up being the kind of longer term value. Um, I know you also mentioned that you know you buy a lot from artists directly. Um, I was wondering if you'd speak a little bit about how those relationships develop too. Yeah, so I, I tend to sort of follow artists to galleries or art fairs versus sort of showing up at a gallery or fair and looking around and picking something that I like. Um, and so I tend to start with the artist first. And those relationships, I sort of just mentioned it, but I think spending time actually at openings outside of the gallery world is where a lot of those relationships have, have formed for me. Um, so going to the Studio Museum in Harlem and going to the artists in residence open studios and showing up at openings there. Um, I also am on the board of Creative Time and the Brooklyn Museum, and both of those organizations have afforded me a lot of opportunities. Um, to meet artists. So I think supporting your local nonprofits is actually a really great way um, to learn a little bit more of the, about the art world. If you're new, to have some guides um, through that with you, whether it's the curator or the executive director of an organization, um, I think they can be really helpful allies as you start to think about how to build your, connect, your collection. Being a gallerist and a fair director, I guess it's not really a fair question to ask where, where to start a gallery fair auction house. Um, but Jasmine, I know when when we were speaking kind of a little bit ahead of this, you said galleries. That, yeah. <laughs> um, but you you said something I thought was pretty interesting because I think a lot of young collectors find walking into the gallery space and uh, just finding somebody to talk to quite intimidating sometimes. And you, you mentioned that you actually like that more than almost I'm any waiting. other interaction. I'm just desperately waiting <laughs> by the door, <laughs> smiling. Hi, do you have any questions? <laughs> Do you, want, do you want to know any prices? We take credit cards, payment plan. How, how do you go about kind of starting those conversations, though? And if somebody does walk in kind of straight off the street, no background, like what do you think are kind of the first steps as a gallerist and your responsibility to help them make the right decisions and find art that they're going to be passionate about for a long time? I think it just sort of depends a lot on my mood, to be perfectly honest, which is maybe the most helpful answer. Because I'm sitting in the front of the desk, I'm very exposed, and you can catch me at like at any time of the day, and I may be receiving like a really bad email at the particular moment, but I do really genuinely try to be as open as possible and meet people where they are. I try to ask a lot of questions to see what 
somebody's interests are because that can better give me, like it just gives me a place to start with helping basically and communicate with anybody. I was similar when I, when I had the gallery. I think there's, there's this misconception as well that like you go into a big gallery. I mean, it, it's, it's different. Again, like you go in, there's a gallerina there and there's like, you know, it's, a, it's like that barrier, right, um, between, between you and the artwork. And I think when you go into smaller galleries or galleries where the owner is like at the, the desk, like I used to be too, I was just so bloody thankful that somebody came in that... I was like you, I was like, hi, any, any questions? What are you, like, do you want to talk about it? Because nobody knows, other than the artist, um, nobody knows the work better than the gallerist that's representing the artist. So I always encourage questions um, when you go into to the gallery and also when you're at the fair. I feel like one of the, the secrets is that the, usually the front desk assistants, if it's at a bigger gallery and it's not the owner, are terribly bored and actually really want to speak to someone and aren't actually that snooty. Um, well, it's also difficult because, like you said, you're ex you're exposed and you're sat there, and you know, for one minute, you don't know if you've got somebody coming in who's going to like drop ten grand on a painting, or somebody who's going to come in and just be crazy. Like you don't know. It's like a weird, like public space. So you, it's a very interesting social experiment too. So you have to be, you have to be conscious of of um, of, of each other. You just have to be courteous. I know it kind of in my early art world days, I found fairs incredibly useful to just get a huge amount of exposure to tons of different galleries, tons of different artists. But I wondered also kind of having come, being a collector, having a gallery now, running a fair, if there are any kind of secrets to approaching that, you know, 100, 200, sometimes 300 galleries uh, that, you might, that you might share with the, the audience. I mean, there's, there's a reason why the term fair fatigue is around because it is overwhelming and there are so, so many. What I like to do is I like to go to a fair and I like to, to wander around without a map um, and just sort of like take things in um, and then pick up information from galleries and artists that I, that I like. Um, and then I want to like revisit that. And if the gallery's in New York, I want to go into the gallery and like, I want to know more about the artist. So I just always think you should never be afraid to ask questions and um just just look and take notes and you know your taste will evolve over time or not you're just like the same thing the whole time who knows it's so subjective i also i think there's a certain anonymity to it that can be liberating as a new collector versus walking into a gallery where maybe you're the only person there um and it's sort of like you and the desk person and it's silent and awkward and uncomfortable um, I think fairs really benefit from having this flow of people and you can just sort of take notes and walk and see without being watched while you're doing it. Yeah, I think it can work. I think it can work both ways because, you know, it, there's nowhere better to experience artwork than in the gallery or, or a museum or in an artist studio. And, and sometimes um, that the anonymity is is great, but I think that I'm a very reactionary person, so I, I get more of an experience like being in the in the gallery, and I kind of like I always want to talk to the gallerist, whether they want to talk to me or not. <laughs> but in a in a fair, it's socially acceptable to be drinking while looking at art, which, which is, is cool. Good. Yeah, it's helpful. It's very, good. very, yeah. very helpful. <laughs> champagne carts. You have to pay cash. That's one thing you have to know. You have to pay for champagne and cash at art fairs. Important um, Victoria, one of the things that was in the billing for this talk that I thought was uh, was interesting is that uh, I think it said start collecting at your current salary 
Um, I know for me that probably doesn't let me walk into JTT tomorrow and buy something. Just Payment plan. I, just give me some time. <laughs> we have everything from three hundred to three hundred dollars. <laughs> not 300,000 we have things so just give me some time um, but what I thought was uh, really amazing with what the way that you guys work with a lot of artists at Kickstarter is um, finding ways to uh, when a collector or just art enthusiast supports a project provide an addition as part of the kind of incentive there and many other things I'm wondering if you just talk a little bit about how you guys work with artists and how that uh, might provide an entry point for uh, for someone who maybe can't, you know, or, or it feels intimidating even just to walk into a fair gallery. And yeah, sure. Um, I guess there's the anonymity of the internet at Kickstarter, which is maybe even more than at a fair. But um, And on Artsy. I, for, I'll just plug, plug Artsy <laughs> there, too. <laughs> but essentially, Kickstarter, as most of you, I imagine, know, is a funding platform for creative projects. And when you pledge to a campaign, you receive a reward in exchange. Um, and so we've been thinking on the on the artist side, or artist projects, or artists run by a nonprofit in tandem with an artist. Um, we often encourage people to offer additions, as Alex was mentioning, um, and something that's at a low enough price point that somebody who's just browsing on the internet actually feels like, wow, I could part with $200 or $75, um, not only to help this project happen, um, but to also get a print in return or an addition um, or something small that's a token that actually we've seen is actually an entry point for a lot of people into collecting. Um, so we just had the Bruce High Quality Foundation just did this great project where for $200 you could get a handmade work um, by a couple of, of the guys who are part of the collective. Um, and it sold out over and over again. Um, so we've really found that there are people actually there who are excited um, to pledge for these small amounts and actually feel like they're, they're getting a little bit of a project that's actually larger um, than just the piece itself. There are artists that I have both worked with and admired who I've been able to give 50 and $100 towards seeing projects through, and it's been really fulfilling. And in some cases, I even have received like T-shirts with... Like Ellen Cantor, before she passed away, finished funding her Pinochet porn project with Kickstarter, and she had made these incredible Pinochet porn T-shirts, um, which are now kind of treasured as just beautiful like memorabilia. And another artist I know, Mia Ardito, has been funding her Sad Girls Club videos through it, and she gives out like mouse pads. And I just like this idea that there's kind of a level to a range of depending on um, the different artists and where they are. I, yeah, I would also just added my own perspective as like a collector myself that I often fall in love with an artist and usually I can't afford to get, you know, one of their sort of primary works and end up being feeling like I'm closer to that artist or part of their story or part of the narrative their, of their work by getting a print or a small drawing or something that just is a little just a little something um, sort of as I'm building towards hopefully one day being able to support them in a bigger way. It's interesting, we've, we're just moving apartments and like taking all the artwork off the walls and I've been I'm thinking that I kind of wished over the past sort of five years that I'd held on to some of my money and bought like one or two bigger pieces um, because I've just got so much. It's, it's a little bit insane and we're moving to a place where there's not so many walls and you're moving all these objects and even though I love them all and they all have stories 
I, I just think I'm, I'm getting to that point now where I think I probably have to set a plan and not just buy what I love all the time. I, mean, I think that, that on the collector side, this money conversation and budgeting is, is definitely something on top of mind. We talked a little bit about before art is investment. I don't know how deep we want to go in there. But I was also curious, just from a more practical level, you know, art and money have quite a fraught relationship, and I think it can be awkward to have conversations around pricing and um, negotiations to whatever extent some galleries do that and some don't. But Jasmine, I think from, from your perspective, it would be great to hear how you even set prices with your artists. And then, um, you know, Victoria and Helen as well, how you're engaging in those conversations with galleries in a way that feels you know, not, not insulting to the artist, but also responsible to your ability to, to feel good about making a purchase decision. Setting a price for an artwork is a very, I would love to attend a panel on that. <laughs> like, your guess is as good as mine. I mean, it's really, but <laughs> there's definitely ranges. I would say it's like one to $5,000. And these are, these are ranges that I'm thinking about. I'm not setting any standards outside of just my gallery. And I think it's important for me to say that because I don't want you guys to think that these are ranges that you have to live by in collecting. But when I'm pricing artwork or thinking about artwork, there's sort of a range from like a couple hundred dollars to 5,000, 5,000 to 10,000, 10,000 to 20,000, and then 20,000 to 50,000. I don't really work with very many artists over 50,000. I do have work that's out, outside of that and that might change in as soon as three or five years, but that's really where my price point is. And I think that's probably a very complicated question, but yeah. it's, that's maybe, I think, I feel like negotiating doesn't have to be this big, difficult thing as long as you, there's a respectful way to go about it. Like Alexandra was saying earlier, Victoria, I'm sorry, was saying that the, um, a really like thoughtful thing, which was that to think about the artist when you're thinking about the discount, because that is like a very thoughtful thing to anticipate, um, because that is ultimately where the money might end up coming out of. I mean, I try to protect the artist in, in those conversations, but it's just hard. So just to kind of clarify, you're saying that when a collector comes in and says, I want a 20, 30% discount, that that's something that you're having to think about as a gallerist of, do I take a hit on my bottom line or do I have to pass that discount on to the artist? What does that mean for their practice in the long term? And I think, I don't know if everybody knows here, but the standard is the gallery takes 50% and the artist takes 50%. So, and we're in a discounted culture, right? Where I feel like everybody asks for, for discounts. And I think when, I, I just think what Jasmine said is just you have to be respectful. Like you can always ask. There's no harm in asking. And if you really, you really love it and you really want it and the, they're not able to discount, then there's always a payment plan. So you can always kind of hopefully get what you want. Well, one thing I also wanted to say when asking about discounts is it is 50-50, but also depending on the artwork, there's a certain amount of money that might have gone into it to produce it. So, so like if the artwork costs $10 to buy, it might cost $4 just to make that object. And we're keeping that... Low, we're trying to keep the price as low as possible so that on the consumer end, it's not too much of a burden, if it, especially if it's an emerging artist. I, mean, I think getting back to kind of one of the initial things, and then we're going to open it up for questions. But, you know, selling is something that obviously is kind of not talked about too much in the art world, but is a certain life cycle 
Jasmine, I remember you saying when we were talking earlier that you, you sometimes even encourage that um, for a number of reasons. But is there a good way to sell something that you've bought from a gallery, from an artist directly, et cetera? So maybe you guys know this or maybe you don't, but I'm a primary art dealer. So I get it directly from the artist. I'm a primary art dealer. A secondary art sale could be from a dealer. It could be, um, it could even be an artist or it could be a client collector, it's when the artwork is sold a second time, right? So it's super easy. But it's like, and there's this idea that secondary markets really corrupt primary markets. And it can definitely happen. It definitely does happen. And it's something you have to be, my, like, my main job is to protect the secondary market because it affects the primary market. But the only reason why I can like take something out of an art studio and put it into a gallery and call it $5,000 is because there's this idea of a secondary market that exists. This is just my fault, like my feelings on it. Um, it doesn't mean that the artwork isn't worth that much, because I do. In some cases, I think it's worth much more. But it's just that that's how like, the psychology of the market exists. Well, this is only $5,000? I mean, that's so cheap. Well, it's in relationship to something else. Otherwise, nobody would say that $5,000 is cheap. I also don't think that collectors should be in any way feel ashamed of wanting to sell something because it's fair if you want to give this artwork like a second life. I think there can even be like a romance to it, but I just think you have to be respectful about it. That's, it's very different from, you know, a type of colluding that can actually happen that can be a whole other conversation about how you can buy in bulk and then sell in order to raise prices. That's a different thing. But selling an artwork, basically the most sort of ethical way you can go about it is to go back to the dealer or the artist directly and say, I want to sell this. Would you like to buy it back? Would you like to sell it? I'll, I'll give you this much time to sell it. Or is it okay if I sell it? And it, that's kind of the order of what is polite, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would just say what you said at the end, which is communication feels like it's key because I think a lot of artists have different relationships to selling on the secondary market. I can't think of anyone who loves it, but I think that there, there are um, some artists who are sort of radically against it to the point that you would never have an option to buy their work again um, and others who don't draw as hard of a line. Um, I remember I was in I was in Brazil and I was visiting this artist studio and she said something that I hadn't really thought about which was just that she had been working for two years on this big show um, in New York and it was her first time showing in New York and she was like so excited about it and a work that she had made in the 80s was being sold at Sotheby's. And almost because of her big show in New York, Sotheby's had put on the cover of their catalog this work that she made in the 80s, which she felt like was really out of context for her current practice. It wasn't work that she wanted people to be thinking about in this moment. And it was completely out of her control. And so I think if you just have open lines of communication, you sort of prevent yourself from being the person who's setting a cycle like that in place because you might not know as a collector what that artist has coming up or how they even feel about the object that you owned. Yeah, you kind of alluded to the blacklisting that can sometimes happen um, around, you know, if, if you sell too much. But Helen, I was curious if you, you know, as you're going through and moving house and thinking about, I wish I bought some some bigger things, would you, would you ever sell work or, or is it kind of also important to your ability to get access to the things that you want to have access to, uh, to not do that? Um, I am a hoarder, so I can't let go of, of anything. I mean, I'd let go of some of the things that my husband has bought, but 
I don't know <laughs> if you would agree to that. So, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Well, that seems like a good enough point to, to open it up to the audience. I don't know if anybody has questions for, for the panel. Sure. Uh, can you talk a little bit about why, um, like, you have to ask for prices? Because I feel like sometimes it, it feels like, depending upon who you are, you would get a different price. Um, and this is kind of a part of the same question, but I bought a couple of pieces of art from a gallery and then went back to buy a third piece that was sold out. And she said, hang on a second. And then she said, actually, we, it said it was sold out, but she said, actually, we can sell you one of the, the proofs. And I think she just sold me that piece because I had bought two other pieces. So I'm just kind of wondering about like access and like how that works and also why it's not more transparent with the pricing because it, it almost seems like they could tell you any price they want and you would have no way of knowing. So I was, I was thinking about this this morning, actually, because I knew this was going to be a question. And I wanted to be really thoughtful in how I answered it, because the, f the first most honest answer is I didn't create the system, but that's also not really fair for me to say, because that's like, I'm just shrugging it off. So I thought, OK, maybe I won't say that. I always have a printed price list. So I always, and I have like two or three of them by my desk, and I always hand them out, and I always say you can keep them which maybe might make you feel a little bit better like about it not being an invented price. I have misquoted prices before and just pretended like, like a lot of times lower than they actually are and just like was too embarrassed to say that I misquoted it. And like sometimes that happens. That's an honest thing. But um, <laughs> I think that to make an art object and to have this career for an artist can be like one of the most sensitive, it's just a very sensitive process all around. And I think that my job is to be sort of the custodian of this career and be to sort of create an environment for this work that this artist doesn't see as a commodity. And I think that a part of the reason why we don't have these prices everywhere is to sort of create an environment where it's just not about that, even though it is. So that's the reason why I wouldn't have prices on like my, for example, on my website. It's just, it's just a tricky thing to do. I'm, I mean, I agree. I think with, with a lot of galleries, you don't want to be seen as a shop. Or like, you know, you know when I had the gallery, my mom and dad were like, how's the store doing? And I was like, oh, parents. Um, they would call mine the studio, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's great. Um, but I do think, it, it, unfortunately, it's, it's not a transparent market. And I think that you will will find with most galleries like Jasmine's where you can you can find a, a price list. And it's just down to the dealer. Like the dealer's gotta be honest and the dealer has to live with himself and live with the you know, with their relationship with the with the artists and with the collectors. So yeah, you definitely got that artist proof because they knew that you were a, a collector of theirs and, and trusted. So it's also you know, like Jasmine was saying, like being a custodian of that and not just giving it to somebody who may potentially flip it. Like you obviously loved that artist, had a relationship with the gallery, and so it made sense. One, one possibility too is, and this happens a lot, is there are times when I have things that are, I mean, I don't do additions, but something's sold and I don't get paid for it and that changes, or the collector changes their mind. Or there's a collect, like sometimes I have collectors that come to me that have bought from me in the past and I feel loyal to and they want like a very long hold like, which, which would be like a two week hold which I usually don't do but maybe it's somebody that is important so you kind of almost just say it's on it's sold because 
If I tell you it's on hold and you come back a week and I say, oh, it's still on hold, that also sounds fishy, yeah. right? It's a little bit of a dance if you only have one object. I think the positive spin on it, too, is that there's this potential to really be part of a community where you can support a young gallery um, and get to know them and be a patron of that, of that space and dedicated to the program and the artists there um, and be welcomed into you know, access and, and opportunity. <clears throat> also, from a little bit of a zoomed-out perspective from just kind of watching the art market, there is a trend towards greater price transparency in the primary market. I think particularly on the more emerging side, um, when artist markets are really in formulation, there, there may not even really be a, a market for, for a given artist at a point in time. It makes sense maybe to keep it behind a, behind a curtain, but we're seeing more and more um, on Artsy's platform and at fairs and individual galleries are putting prices on their websites just to have a little bit more of an open conversation there, but it really does have to come down to the artists and the galleries deciding what's right for, for their relationship, for the market, for where um, what they have coming up shows-wise. I think it's a little bit different if you're heavily involved in institutional things, but it is, it is an increasing trend towards transparency because I think that today's collectors are often looking for that greater fluidity and not, not finding things behind a behind a curtain or feeling like they're getting imperfect information. That's always just a little bit disconcerting. Sorry to keep jumping in, but I do think that it also sort of helps the art world in a broader sense if you have a more open door and are more willing to welcome in people who may be sort of contrary to what I just said are not already part of your community, um, especially at this moment where major institutions are facing huge deficits and galleries are being squeezed at art fairs and you know there's a lot of tension around the finances of the art world that as we know it um, and I think there's actually quite a lot to be gained by opening the door a bit more and welcoming new people in um, and transparency feels to me to be part of that conversation. Thanks for listening. That's all from the panel. We'll be back Thursday with our regularly scheduled programming. If you like what you hear, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Music is by Broke for free. And the producer this week, as always, editorial associate Abigail Kane.